If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. Prepare to be blessed as pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau leads us into the anointed study of the Word of God, teaching and empowering you how to impact your world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, teaching you how to receive the blessings and provisions of God and how to walk through this life with Freedom Through Faith. And now, here's Pastor Robert Thibodeau. We now rejoin today's message already in progress. Teachers of Scripture and Jesus himself only speak the truth and the truth of a real world. So the Bible then is a real world book. Amen. Stories about life, stories about people, things that you can understand because they are part of your own experience. Even when Jesus told stories to hide things, and sometimes he did. Sometimes his stories were intended to become riddles to the people that were never solved. Sometimes his stories were intended to conceal hidden nuggets. And when he did that, he was, by doing that, pronouncing a judgment on his audience, on his listeners. He was saying that your unbelief And your indifference to the truth has reached a point where Jesus speaking here basically says, I'm not going to explain this to you anymore. And he would speak a story at that point, and they wouldn't know what he meant, and he wouldn't tell them. But then later, when alone with his disciples, he would explain it to them. But even then, even when he was endeavoring to conceal the The story was understandable. The story was clear. The story was simple. It could be easily understood, and it was normal and natural and real and consistent with the listener's experiences each and every day. They just didn't know what he was trying to get across unless he explained it. And when he did not explain it to them, It was because it was judgment upon them. Think about it. Now you'd assume that if there was any group of people that Jesus would want to pronounce judgment on, it was the Pharisees and scribes of his day. I mean, they were the religious architects of the popular religion in Israel at the time of Jesus. They were the power people in terms of religion. They were like the politicians of today. They had influence because they plied their religious system through the local synagogues, of which there were many in every town and village, and they had pretty much captured the people and captured them to their form of legalism. 
the way you work your way to salvation, the way you work your way to God by your good deeds, your morality, and your devotion to religious ceremony and rituals. And they saw Jesus as a threat, as the enemy, because Jesus came preaching forgiveness by grace alone. They saw Jesus as a threat to their system. And so, they went on a massive campaign to discredit Jesus throughout the entire country. The basic bottom line slogan of their campaign is, He does what he wants by the power of Satan. That's what they did. They blamed Jesus' miracles and gave credit to the devil. That was their mantra. And that's what they tried to convince all the people was true concerning Jesus. He's not of God, as he claims. He is really of the devil. And one of the proofs that he's of the devil is that he hangs around with all the people who are outcasts of society. All the people who are the tax collectors working for the Romans. They bought tax franchises so they could extort money out of their own people. That kind of traitor was the lowest of the low. And the people who were tax collectors gathered around him, and so did the general category of riffraff that comes from the world called sinners. They're just sinners. They're the outcasts of Jewish society. They had been kicked out of the synagogue and they were dispossessed of any participation at all in any form of social life. People couldn't even hang around them. And because Jesus spent so much time with them, with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners, this to them was evidence that he, to, to the Pharisees, was evidence that he was of the devil. Because he's always hanging around with Satan's crowd. And that's what they told everybody. There was a sense in which they liked to see Jesus in that setting because then they had more ammunition for their propaganda mill. Amen? And that's how chapter 15 begins. All of the tax collectors and all of the sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. And so the Pharisees and the scribes who are watching, they say, this man receives and eats with sinners, which in Jewish society is taboo. So there it is, folks. Look, he's satanic. Just look at him. He's with Satan's people. That's who he spends his time with. It's obvious he is of the devil. That's what they're telling people. That's their indictment of Jesus as Jesus launches this story, chapter 15, beginning in verse 3, all the way through to verse 32. He answers this charge. And Jesus answers it in a most profound and powerful way. If if I could sum up Jesus' answer to these charges sort of take it sort of out of the parable form, it might go like this. This would be what Jesus would be saying in today's quote-unquote modern language. Gentlemen, 
I'm speaking for Jesus here. Gentlemen, I understand what you're accusing me of, eating with sinners, with the lowlifes. And you are correct in that. Because that is exactly what I do. I do not merely allow them to eat with me. I don't only invite them, but like a good shepherd searching for a lost sheep. Remember parable number one? Or a good woman looking for a lost coin. Remember parable number two? Or like a good father running through the village to welcome back a lost son. I go out, and it costs me dearly seeking these sinners whom you so despise. In fact, I'm ready to pay any price to win them and to bring them back home, to eat with me, to live with me, and I will celebrate their homecoming. That's basically, in modern language, what he's trying to get across to them. Amen? But he doesn't give them that. He gives them stories. Stories that are unforgettable, in which this answer that I just related to you becomes crystal clear. And the whole point of it is this. God is interested in recovering lost sinners, and you're not. So how far from God are you? Amen. The whole story, the whole of human history since the fall of Adam is about God recovering lost sinners. That's his main business. And it's his highest joy. That's why in verse 7, after the little story about the man who found a lost sheep, it says, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 who doesn't need repentance. In verse 10, he says, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So don't you get it? How far from God are you? Because you don't have any joy over someone who repents. I, Jesus speaking, am in the business of doing God's work because God's work is recovering that which is lost. And it causes all of heaven to celebrate. I mean, Jesus is just nailing them, nailing them, nailing them over and over and over again. They were absolutely dead wrong. They said, look, he hangs around with lost sinners. It proves he's of the devil. And he says, I hang around those lost sinners because I'm doing the work of God, and the work of God is to recover lost sinners. Amen. Glory to God. Excuse me for a second. All right. The third story in these three parables is really the main story. The first two were just kind of preludes to it. The spiritual aspect of this third story is just amazing. It's profound. That's why we have to fill in so much of it for you because we don't think like first century Pharisees would think. We don't even think like a first century common peasant would think, which is the setting for the story. 
So if we don't take our time and analyze each of these things, each of these elements, we would miss so much. And that's been the problem in the body of Christ and in the churches that we just kind of skim over the stories and say, oh yes, this story is about a young man who forsook his family and ran away from God, but finally he came to his senses and returned home and returned back to God. And that's what every sinner needs to do. Yes, amen. No, that's not the main part of the story. Yes, it's an important part. But if that's all you get out of it, you miss so much. You're just getting the bare bones kind of bare understanding without understanding some of the experiences, some of the nuances, some of the attitudes, some of the conscious and subconscious elements of what people of that day would be thinking. But when you understand like that, amen. Look, I apologize for kind of going back over it, but that's the only way we can stay in the flow of the story. And when you understand all of these little nuances, then the story takes on a life of its own that it never would have otherwise if you're just reading it. Amen. Because all of a sudden, you really see what salvation is. Because in this story, I mean, you talk about theology. In this story, we see sin, unworthiness, repentance, Incarnation, atonement, forgiveness, definitely reconciliation and love and peace. We see sonship. We see blessings. And above all, we see the saving grace of our Father. I mean, you would expect in a story about salvation or a presentation about salvation to have all of those components, and they're here. All of them are right here. And that's what we've been looking at for the past couple of weeks. Amen. So, whew, that took me a half hour <laughs> to basically lay this out for you. Amen. So let's catch up. Oh, glory to God. Thank you, Jesus. Beginning in verse 11, it says, A man had two sons. I'm going to briefly go over this so we can launch into today's study. There are three participants in this story. A man and two of his sons. It's not just a story about a paragial son. It is a story about a man and two sons. That's what verse 11 tells us. So it's clear from the very beginning. There is a man who had two sons. One of the sons is younger and the other is older, obviously. But the father is the central character, not the younger son. The story starts out looking at the younger son, but we end up looking at the older son with the father in the middle. And it all overlaps. Each part overlaps with the other. They all interact with each other. And yet, each part is very clearly defined. Now, one of the major elements of the culture of the first century in Israel was shame and honor. The shame and honor 
perspective was in everything and above everything. No matter what happened, you could you did all you could do to maintain honor. There was a conventional like code of honor, a conventional kind of wisdom. There was a conventional attitude that there was a, a an expected kind of conduct that related to honor, and the opposite side of that was shame. At all co- at all at all costs, you avoided anything that would bring shame upon you. So you always endeavored to act with the conventions and the expectations of the culture, and they had very, very, very highly developed and sophisticated moral codes. I'm not just talking about theology or uh, their view of Scripture. I'm talking about all of the implications of their religion that had developed into a very sophisticated moral code of conduct. And people wanted to live within the confines of this moral code so they would be viewed with honor and not shame. So you avoided shame at any cost, and you pursued honor at all costs. That's the central theme to ancient Middle Eastern life. By the way, it is still part of Middle Eastern life even today. Any violation of the cultural norm was deemed shameful. And that's the worst thing that could ever happen to anybody. You see it in Muslim countries today. If someone shames the family, they kill them. They execute them. Anyway, I've kind of constructed the story around the concept of shame and honor. In fact, each of the points so far has contained the word shame, if you recall the way we've been teaching this. Because as it starts out, it's a very shameful or full of shame story. And you can be sure as this story unfolds, there's one electrifying shock after another that hits these Pharisees and scribes. They are the architects of the honor and shame culture. They have the highest and most sensitive attitudes towards honor, and they despise shame at all costs. So whenever their sensibilities are assaulted, they're going to roll out their legalistic eyes and shake their legalistic heads at the conduct that Jesus is describing to them. So it all begins with the younger son making a shameful request. He comes to his father in verse 12 and says, Give me my part of the estate that falls to me. Give me my part now. And he is a product of his father, but he has no relationship with his father at all. None. The father brought him into being. And that's all in the son's eyes he was good for. He has no relationship to him beyond that part. Because the only way that the Jew listening to this story would understand that kind of request would be the son basically saying, Father, I wish you were dead. Because nobody gets an inheritance in that situation until the father dies. 
And it says, basically, since you're not dying and you're not dead yet, you just act like you're dead and get out of my way, get out of my life, give to me what's mine so I can use it now. So he wants to eliminate any of his father's influence, any of the control, the scrutiny, the restraint. He wants to do away with the requirements, the disciplines. He doesn't want any expectations that the father has planned for him. Nothing. I don't want anything to do with you. I wish you were dead. Just give me what's mine. I mean, he is thoroughly selfish. He has no concern at all for his father, his father's feelings, his honor. And that would cause the Pharisees just to gasp. <gasps> what son would ever do that? First of all, the Ten Commandments are clear. Honor your father and your mother if you want to live a long life. I mean, that's, this is like suicide. What son would do that? That's the first shock to the Pharisees. Why is he asking? He's impatient. He wants us as in state. He wants to turn it into cash fast. He's going to sell it off at a discount. Which Jesus says he does in verse 13. He gathered everything together. That's a Greek phrase meaning he turned it into cash. Which means he sold it short. He dumped it just to get the cash because he was in a hurry to go sin. He wanted to sin in everywhere, every way he could. He wanted to sow his wild oats. He wanted every desire to be fulfilled, every lust fulfilled. He wanted to get as far away from his father, get as far away from scrutiny where anybody knew him, where nobody would judge him and nobody could discipline him. Give me my estate now. I'm going to turn it into cash and I'm going to go do what I want to do without answering to you or anybody else ever. That is such an outrageous, blatant, shameful request that totally dishonors the Father. Now, the Pharisees and in Middle Eastern culture, the Father would be expected if he didn't just lay the son out with a right cross, at least slap him across the face. The father would display public anger in order to maintain his own honor. The father would then act disciplinary towards his son, doing something to discipline that kind of attitude. And then the father would refuse to give him anything that he so shamefully asked for. Now there's a footnote here. The people listening to this story would be saying, by the way, where's the older brother here? Because in that culture, the older brother, the one who had the right to inherit the estate, the one who really, his job was to stand alongside the father, he had one great responsibility at all times in the family, and that was to protect the honor of the father. They would have expected the older brother to do something about protecting the well-being of his brother. You know, if anything, go out and knock him out. Knock some sense into him. So where's he at? Where's the older brother? What we find is he could care less 
about his brother's well-being. And he cares even less about protecting the father's honor because he isn't even there. And in the minds of the Pharisees, in the, in the, the minds of the listeners, they'd be saying, where is the older brother? Hey, the, the story's got to bring the older brother in here. The older brother has a responsibility here. Because the older brother was to serve as the mediator. The older brother was to be the reconciler. The older brother was to be the protector of the father's honor and hopefully bring his brother back into the fold and protect his well-being. So the only conclusion you can draw is the older brother has no love at all for his brother and no love or respect for his father. Amen. The shameless request leads to a shameless rebellion. We studied this. He takes what's his in verse 13 and sells it. There's people willing to buy it in town. They know the father's elderly. He'll be dying in one of these days, a couple years. So they buy the estate that is now rightfully the younger sons. They buy it at a discount, knowing they'll make their money in the end. So he turns it into cash. He leaves town, goes on a journey to a distant country, a Gentile land, which, of course, was a horrible thing to do. And he squatters his complete estate with loose living. Later on it says, with harlots and prostitutes. Literally, he wasted the entire estate, all of the money. That's where the word prodgil comes from. It means waste. And when he spent everything, verse 14, a severe famine hit the land he was in. His fault He had spent the entire money. It's not his fault that the famine came. But hey, that's life. Bad timing, you could say. Just bad timing. So there he is. His condition is as bad as it can be. He's as low as you can go. He's as bad as it gets. You can't get any worse than this. In the mind of the Pharisee, to dishonor your father was at the head of the list. And then to turn your estate into cash at a discounted price, what a stupid economic move. And it would show how foolish this boy really was. Then to go and take it and just spend it on immoral living wastefully with nothing to show for it. It shows the depth this son has gone to in his sin. And then, to reach the point where you've exhausted all of it, you got nowhere else to turn, Jesus tells him it gets even worse. He hires himself out, verse 15. Basically, the Greek word it means to glue himself. He glues himself to some Gentile citizen in the country, which probably meant... He hung on the guy and kept pestering him until the guy, just to get rid of him, told him, okay, go to the field, go to my field, feed the pigs, and eat some of their food. 
You have just heard a message of encouragement from anointed pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau with Freedom Through Faith Ministries in Baltimore, Maryland. For more information on the Freedom Through Faith Ministries or to invite Pastor Thibodeau to your church, please visit our website, www.ftfm.org. That's FTFM for Freedom Through Faith Ministries. Again, that's ftfm.org. Until next time, when we gather together around the Word of God, be blessed. And remember, we serve an awesome God.